0: Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Hatem hibri about his new book, Visions of Beirut, the Urban Life of Media Infrastructure. I also talk to Kevin Kohler, who, along with Sharon Gruel and Holger Albrecht, is the author of a new article, Who Fakes Support for the Military? Experimental Evidence from Tunisia, And then finally, we check in with Christian Coach Ulrichsen of Rice University's Baker Institute about the ongoing tensions between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Hatem Alhibri of George Mason University, author of the recent book, Visions of Beirut, the Urban Life of Media Infrastructure, which was recently published by Duke University Press. Uh, Hatem, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this book. It's so interesting. Yeah, well, so this book came out of
1: a particular experience I had when I was still in graduate school. Um, It was December of 2006, and I go back to visit family in Beirut, and I'd heard on the news beforehand, of course, like like most people, that there was this large sit-in demonstration being staged by Hezbollah, the Lebanese political party and militia, sort of taken over and staged a sit-in demonstration near parliament in what is sometimes called downtown Beirut. Um, This was in in part to protest a political bloc, in power in government at the time, who they accused of being too pro-Western. This is on the wake of the 2006 war uh, with Israel. So, of course, like the enterprising graduate student that I was, I'm like I have to go see what this is about. And what was ordinarily the most heavily policed part of the city had turned into like a nighttime street fair. People milling around and hanging out, uh, major thoroughfares had been completely closed to car traffic. You had street stalls selling party memorabilia and kebabs and coffee and candy and whatnot. And I noticed that at two key locations, for those who know the city in Martyrs Square and Riyadh de salah Square, they'd set up these large projection screens uh, on performance stages. And what I noticed is that when there wasn't a speaker or a performer, what you had was the live stream of Al-Manar TV, Hezbollah's satellite station. And at certain key moments, I noticed that there was live coverage of the protest playing at the protest. And I thought to myself, okay, wow, that's kind of, it's kind of trippy to see that kind of circular image, the mise en abime where an image contains Mm -hmm. itself in its own frame. But I thought to myself, you know, there's there's something more to this. What is the political and historical context that makes this situation possible? What is the relationship between embodied mobility and the city and the circulation of images? I started to ask questions, how have images been useful to power beyond just the staging of spectacle? How have been images been part of the production of the spaces of the city? And that it, sort of in brief is how I came up with the idea for this book, to both, ex- to both think about this historically and also contextually. Um, this is part of why what might at first seem like a sort of a wide ranging book stretching from, an analysis of like, aerial photography and mapping practices during the French mandate in the 1920s and 30s, up to things like the Lita Museum of the Resistance, as well as museum um, in the South. What, what makes these things hold together is trying to make sense of how images become useful to power. Or yeah. as the case may be, uh, sorry, how it is that infrastructure allows us to rethink
0: the nature of the images. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's actually exactly what I was going to ask you, which is, you know, so building on the title of the book, Media Infrastructure, you mean something particular by both media and infrastructure, which are not necessarily what someone might just assume when they hear those words. This isn't just about TV. This isn't just about the internet. It's about something much bigger and uh, theoretical. Walk us through this a little bit. What does it mean to engage critically with this concept of media infrastructure?
1: So I understand infrastructure to be those sociotechnical systems which enable the movement of uh, information and energy and objects and people. Um, and, I think of, and I think of media in terms of infrastructure in this book. I also think of infrastructure in terms of those media technologies which enable its creation. By thinking about media in terms of infrastructure, it moves us away from What people will often assume to be the point of studying media, which is it will somehow explain public discourse or the formation of attitudes and subjectivities or reveal state agendas. Um, Thinking about infrastructure allows us to grasp uh, the place of media in everyday life. Thinking about infrastructure in terms of media conversely allows us to see how the production of space is a contested and fraught process. Now, when you think about infrastructure in places that are sometimes called the global South, Uh, We have to, one of the things I insist is that we, or I try to argue for in this book, is that infrastructure is, we can never assume it to be automatically functioning. Oftentimes how we think of infrastructure, right, is it's smoothly functioning and we've forgotten how much it underpins our lives until there's like a catastrophic uh, brownout and suddenly we realize, oh, like what am I gonna do without power? But like in Beirut, certainly in the period that I'm thinking about most in this book, it's not just that there's power cuts all the time. It's that the power cuts even become predictable. Hmm. The interruption of the smooth functioning of infrastructure is the everyday. This is why I argue for in this book, a sense of infrastructure as always already incomplete and incompletable. The TV broadcast cannot always be assumed to continue to smoothly operate and smoothly function, something which dramatically happens in, with Almanar in the 2006 war. Um, this is also what leads me to think about the politics of infrastructure as something which is open to contestation, and not just open to contestation by the usual binary of the powerful and the subaltern, but as something which is hotly contested in a multipolar uh, uh, situation, right? So sovereignty is not one with infrastructure because infrastructure is not one with itself. And there are infrastructures in conflict with each other.
0: Especially in Lebanon, where, as you describe, uh, it's totally interwoven with the militia system and the sectarian system, in the after, especially in the aftermath of the uh, civil war. So very much so, right? So, for example, part of the reason why you have uh,
1: so many Lebanese TV stations to begin with, TV kind of is like a preoccupation in the book, Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why you have so many TV stations is during the Civil War, when the state had no control over broadcast spectrum, like everybody with the wherewithal and funding set up a a radio station and sometimes a TV station. And so what you have there is a a way that a sectarian political order is sort of to map onto a sectarian allocation of broadcast spectrum in the post-war period. So right after the state comes in and re-regulates, you have like a sectarian apportionment of who gets to keep their illegal TV station, right? Which then turns into transnational broadcast. broadcasting. You know, there's mm-hmm. been work of many who've ex- explored how this takes place. What I'm, what I'm adding to that conversation is a sense of the factors along which broadcast moves. I want to always make in this book, sectarianism, not the explanatory framework, but that which is in need of explanation. What gives it its coherence, how and where does the control of infrastructure or the production of space,
0: how does, how does sectarianism become baked into that system? That's really interesting. Um, the, um, one of the things about your, this idea of the incompleteness of media infrastructure, which I found really fascinating, a theme running through the entire book actually, is this idea of visibility and concealment and, this, and, and, and the connections between power, politics and then all of these ways in which things are selectively or strategically visible or not visible. And maybe you could t- talk through this a little bit. It's such an important theme in the book. So as someone who comes from media studies
1: and visual culture studies, um, I'm, I've, I'm already kind of disposed to thinking about images. And oftentimes we assume images to be much more powerful than they may actually be. We assume that the line drawn on the map is violence done to the city itself directly. And there's kind of an immediate connection that's forged between those images. And part of that is because power and states do become very invested in techniques of legibility, techniques of visibility. Making things visible is to make make a space visible to render it on paper is to uh, render it manageable from a centralized to a centralized planning apparatus. This is part of where this uh, chapter on the social life of maps begins, right? What if we were to consider maps as like a contingent and incomplete thing of a sign that power has become invested in not just the system of legibility, but a, a more specific operational use of images but but in which the the city itself is is never rendered uh, as completely controllable as the map gives the impression of being. There's something which I like to call the Sykes-Picot overread, right? (laughs) Which is that that lines are drawn during Sykes-Picot and all political situations flow from there, right? Um, And and certainly, right, like there's really important things that happen in, in those moments. But there's but the the most interesting parts of the story are what happened in the messy contestation and complicities between ruling elites, uh, mass politics, and also like the dovetailing of things like military surveillance with urban planning. And this this chapter looks at this in like th- in three eras, right? There's I look at mapping aerial photography and urban planning in the French mandate. The, the first couple of decades of independent state and sort of the, state, the state-led the state development planning initiatives of that era, and then damage assessment exercises during the Civil War from 1975 to 1990. And the, the game, uh, the, the ambit of this chapter is to track how maps are in and of the city. I only look at archives in the city because I want to tell a story about how the space itself doubles back in a recursive fashion on the mapping and planning process. It's like, cadastral mapping is famously never completed uh, to any great extent outside of the city of Beirut, like there's entire parts of the South, which only ever have like, a only ever have property registered in more relatively recent decades. But also like aerial photography, we often assume to be, this is like the, the, the God trick view from above, the utmost moment of violence where seeing is destroying. But there are people who shot down or shot at planes during the mandate. There's Daniel Neap's great book which explores this in great detail. And this was the case during the revolt in Syria, for example. There's similar efforts in in Lebanon as well. Um, uh, To name a system of legibility is to name a politics of being made visible. And what I eventually found when I was trying to to study images in the 2006 war was that there's only so far that we get by looking at the images that are visible or the visual modalities of um, spectacle or surveillance, right, the the two grade critical registers in which we, we often think of images and imaging and legibility and visibility. But in truth, you have another parallel set of techniques, what I call the techniques of the unobserved, right, which are about concealment. By concealment, I mean a, a purposive set of practices and acts which aim to keep people, places, and things hidden. Sometimes concealment can be can be about the concealment of the infrastructure, uh, but most but it is it is more specifically an attempt to hide from surveillance, to deliberately not be visible. Uh, I, I can. I can go in any number of directions here. I can talk about mapping. Wait,
0: wait, 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 why don't we start with the, with that, this really interesting. So you go to the archive uh, and you recover all of these maps from the mandate period and the like. And as you said, you, it begins with the aerial, um, these aerial surveys, but this is in the context of something like counterinsurgency and the efforts to actually impose some kind of sovereign power. So, Let's talk about that a little bit, and kind of what you see as you start looking at these maps and their intersection with what we could call reality. Sure. Yeah. Well. So, the French mandate famously imports
1: uh, a bunch of colonial officers from North Africa. Right. Um, and this is this is like one of these curious circularities, right? So, the, although the book is anchored in Beirut, you often have to go to like Morocco and Algeria and there comes with this a, a sense that uh, to manage counterinsurgency is to do urban planning, right? There's the uh, people like, uh, pe- the books like Laleh Khalili's great book, uh, Time in the Shadows will, will, will explore this uh, in much greater depth um, than, than I will here. But yeah, so the, the mandate comes in and creates uh, not just the centralized planning apparatus, but also institutes a new cadastral registry And both of these depend on the twinning of ground survey and aerial photography. And, you know, the the view from above has an outsized role in 20th century political practice and political thought, right? Like there's great work which will explore of how even people um, like Henri Lefebvre, for example, was impacted by the sense of the social as a totality grasped from a, a point above a space. But, the archive, So the archives in Beirut have gaps in them. There are maps from certain years which you can't find or are rendered very difficult to access because like they're in the Ministry of Finance where you know, cadastral maps are really useful for rendering, rendering space uh, precisely delineated by boundaries, useful for taxation and also the creation of property markets. and I thought you know I could do a version of this project which goes to like uh, archives in France that would go to the war archives in, in the UK certainly national archives here in DC and you would start to get a sense of how different like agencies have been ma- have been trying to do mapping in Beirut for quite some time but to think about the spaces incomplete as not actually totally manageable uh, this is something which is revealed by looking at the maps as like very contingent documents, which have a life of their own, animated not just by the, pe- the intentions of the people who create them, but the political situations which the maps themselves are a part of. The maps allow us to tell a story about an incomplete urban process in which power is not the only story. Even if I do tell the story from the perspective of the maps,
0: um, and this and- is. And, and jumping ahead to the Civil War, it becomes power itself. If militias get their hands on these maps, they can actually use them as they're, as they're trying to redraw the urban space in their own interest.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that happens in Civil War, of course, is militias raid like municipal archives for maps because many militias at the time had gotten a hold of like, artillery. And to use artillery successfully, you have to be able to do mathematically precise targeting. In order to do that, you need mathematically precise maps. Uh, So yeah, there was a a great deal of onus to do this. But of course precision targeting um, is like a funny thing. To go back to like the mandate, they didn't have maps of any kind of precision to do this uh, in order to do precision targeting. And what like, what this results in is, well, if you can't target something precisely, just you just fire more. <laughs> um, but yeah, these, these violences, right? And the relationship of violence to urban space is a key part of what you get at when you look at maps in this way. Maps become part of the prosecution of violence, the exercise of power, but they also become themselves subject to attack, right? The space doubles back on the system of power The the ability to map Beirut precisely in no way prevents the outbreak of the civil war, for example.
0: And that's a theme that you come back to when you're looking at the Israeli war on Lebanon in 2006, where entire neighborhoods are, you know, you you describe it as as a racialization process where anyone in particular areas is presumed guilty um, in a sense of being an Hezbollah supporter or the like. And so it kind of, yeah, you can trace that all the way through.
1: Yeah, certainly in, in like the 2006 war where you have the emergence of, or the, I would say the re-emergence of this rhetoric whereby there's a properly liberal modern Lebanese-ness or Lebanese polity who is uh, pro-Western. And these are different from uh, the irrational or uh, irrational fundamentalist Islamic, Islamist Hezbollah supporters. And this takes this takes this is not just sort of like a submerged racial language of that always underpins Mm -hmm. sort of this particular notion of of political liberalism. But when that becomes mapped onto culture, becomes mapped onto ethno-religious identity in a sectarian system, and then becomes the grounds for, therefore, it's okay to bomb these neighborhoods or bomb these people, that's that is, I think, properly understood as a moment of racialization of of, uh, of racializing biopolitics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When the idea, for example, described bombing South Beirut and Dahi, the emergence of the so-called Dahi doctrine, uh, I think that's like properly understood to be uh, a racialized form of urban of urban improvement. This is the like the culmination of a certain notion of slum clearance. Right. This leads to the uh, this 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 really sort of bizarre moment at the UN. Where the Israeli ambassador speaking at the outset, of violence to, like speaks directly to his Lebanese counterpart, saying, "In your heart of hearts, you sort of agree with me that what we're doing is like cutting out, cutting a cancer out of Lebanon." And this is this tricky thing, right? Is that yes, there's very precise targeting, right? These specific neighborhoods will be destroyed, right? That techniques of surveillance, particularly in this case, not just satellite imaging from above and also live drone surveillance that animate the 2006 war. But the thing that I, that I find when I start trying to make sense of, okay, what's happening with images and surveillance? And I'm like, but they're not able to like bomb so-called targets of opportunity in time, the IDF. There's this discourse, which I always was, there's a discourse of we, like the, the proper prosecution of the liberal war presumes precise targeting to minimize collateral damage. And perhaps there's this moments where this goes awry, but it's basically an, an important thing. And there's a critique which says, but the precise bombing is never precise and who gave you the right to decide who lives and dies anyway? But I found that that was like not actually fully addressing what's going on here. Most of when I started to study like human rights watch reports and other and other studies, UN studies and others of what happened in the 2006 war. What I found was that like actually the vast majority of bombs that were dropped on Lebanon were not dropped in civilian areas. Of course Hezbollah has, does not have precise weaponry and so they're just sort of firing at the direction of turning uh, the, the Northern part of, of Israel into like, an un, like the sky just becomes like this uncertain hazard as a whole. And civilians are the primarily the ones who die in this, right? Uh, Le- Lebanese and Israeli. Disproportionately Lebanese, but primarily civilians on both sides of the border. But what I found is that, like the vast majority of the bombs are dropped, like in fields, in uh, mountainsides, valleys. Entire villages were destroyed and bombed. All any and all moving, uh, moving objects in the south, entire south of the country at certain points were bombed, including, like, ambulances. But. The vast majority was not that. The the issue starts to materially become a question of concealment. Guerrilla, Hezbollah guerrilla fighters hidden in landscape utilizing a set of underground tunnels and weapons caches which were not hidden um, in civilian areas, but far from them. Israeli bombing patterns confirm this, right? It's not that there's a, uh, there's human shields at work, it's that you can't find who to bomb to begin with. Right. Make sense of images and infrastructure in the 2006 war meant grappling with uh, this very different visual modality, which we are less attuned to making sense of, right? We are, we're used to thinking of visibility as that is the moment when power happens. To make something visible is to speak back to power, to surface that which has been hidden, To make something visible is to render it targetable, to make something visible is to render the public distracted, right? The the Critique of war as spectacle. Certainly all of this takes a different resonance for me since we're talking on the day when uh, Russia has has gone in, has formally invaded Ukraine, right? But concealment is this different modality which we need to grapple with quite critically. Concealment is in the powers of hiddenness are a, a crucial part of what infrastructure does. Concealment is a crucial part of how infrastructure itself even functions at times. To remain concealed is to remain concealed within very specific techniques and systems of legibility and visibility. There's a specific type of surveillance, which the, the concealed are trying to anticipate and outpace. But I'd also like to stress that like concealment is not like something normatively automatically positive right like concealment is not resistance right any more than hezbollah is a resistance in any like they although they describe themselves as the resistance um, like concealment is already what states right. are doing concealment is already uh, uh agents of the state disappearing activists concealment is already uh like prisons in Syria, where people are generally aware and and are knowledgeable of where they are, but cannot exactly place specifically where they are. Concealment can be how you hide from the cops, but it can also be
0: how the cops trap you. Right. No, it's it's really fascinating. Let's switch gears for this kind of last uh, 10 minutes or so, because I really want to talk about your analysis of Solidaire and the rebuilding, reconstruction of Beirut. Although it's not exactly reconstruction, as you argue, um, it's uh, it's something a little bit different. So walk us through that your reading of this imagery of like the before and the after and the, the way Solidaire uh, approached uh, the, you know, the aftermath of the war.
1: So we were talking a little bit before this, and you've you've sort of brought this back to my mind, how this book sort of has uh, two clusters, right? There's a chapter one and chapter two about mapping and post-war construction. And then there's a chapter three and chapter four, which center on Hezbollah Al-Manar and the Lita Museum of the Resistance. The the chapter on post-war construction uh, emerged out of a sense that what, What happens in the post-war moment is, in some ways, a deep extension of uh, very particular ways of visualizing the spaces of the city, of of rendering the city amenable to visual capture and visual representation, but that it moved in a very different way. The argument I make in that chapter is that post-war construction, particularly in the case of Solidaire, sort of the most extreme uh, exemplar of a broader uneven logic of post-war construction, depended on culture to, to happen. That at the height of the introduction of global financialization, you had a, a reworking of the purpose of images. Images were put into the service of attracting global investment. Um, what I call image, the type of image that I'm thinking of in particular are images of before, after. Images of before, after are eventually become ubiquitous, but start out primarily like in corporate boardrooms and mm-hmm. PR literature and so on. Uh, image of before after is an image which contrasts uh, the, the spaces of the city before construction with a shot of uh, what they will be like after construction has taken place. Originally architectural renderings and drawings, later photographs of work completed before construction, after construction images of before and after are made for a very particular type of spectator, what I call a citizen investor. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm joining uh, the work of many others in, in saying that there's a politics, there's a visual politics to citizenship. To be a good citizen in this visual uh, culture is to see the city like an investor, to see, to see war-torn landscapes from the very specific perspective of how can this yield maximum uh, return for global investors? You see rubble and you think profit. You see rubble and you think profit. You see rubble and you think what needs to happen to smooth the the entry of this space into a company ledger and how can that ledger then be made investable? What are the, the legal exceptionalities that have to cut through the supposed uh, bloated bureaucracy of the Lebanese state. This is sort of the rhetoric of, like the reason why you need uh, to declare eminent domain on an entire part of the city and then hand that, uh, that property to a private real estate company. Mm-hmm. That, that depends on a very particular kind of argument about, well, there is no alternative. This is sort of capitalist realism, which culminates in Hezbollah's Milita Museum of the Resistance as its, as its origins here. Now, I, I wanna be really clear, right? Like talking about Solidaire potentially leads to like a, a deep misreading. I'm not saying that Solidaire, that the logic of Solidaire then uh, directly explains the rest of Beirut and the rest of the post-war period. It's actually how it's the unevenness between the hyper-targeting of what Solidaire has under their control, the carving out of this area, which then becomes one, which was previously several neighborhoods, mm-hmm. it's, it's exactly that, like 200 meters outside of that boundary is just like like real poverty, like real serious poverty. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to give a sense of how the political economy of post-war construction depended on a way of
0: seeing and feeling the city. What was fascinating there is when you, you identify the places that do and don't get Uh, demolished, um, and what gets restored, and what gets, you know, kind of replaced?
1: You you know, the this there's a shocking figure here, a shocking number that I like to give people, which is that if 15 years of civil war, militia combat, um, Israeli invasions, the the total toll of that, and that toll, according to the estimates that I've read, is that something like 30% of the buildings in this no man would, would become a no man's land, were destroyed beyond repair, right? 30%, you, you cannot do restoration on. They're just, the buildings have to come down structurally. By the time Solidaire is done clearing buildings, that number rose to 80%. Just a shocking escalation. And this was, this was made to seem, or it was described as just, the, there's, this is the only thing which can be done unless you want the rubble of the before image, you have to agree to this very specific type of vision for the future. And this was like hotly contested in the press at the time, right, I, I do interviews with newspaper editors and journalists and, you know, they're like, first of all, like Soledadera was kind of like the news because this was clearly the battle line over what the post-war political consensus is going to be. And like, it's not even like the Sunni elites of Beirut like immediately welcomed Hariri with open arms. The story of Soviet is the story of the emergence of Haririism in the the post-war moment. But eventually, like they just kind of take control over the space. And although, you know, there'd been clearance of rubble that had started to happen during the 80s by, well, contracting firms associated with Hariri back in the 80s, (laughs) as early as like 86, for example, they were being paid millions of dollars to to clear rubble. But it starts to seem like an inevitability. And although Solidaire itself very rarely actually builds any buildings, it primarily oversees renovation work done on what is called the Fush Allenby area of of downtown Beirut. It primarily just, it stages like architectural competitions and oversees other people's construction. Um, It starts to feel like an inevitability. And then, you know, you start to have like these cafes and high-end restaurants and banks and government agencies. And later they start to open high-end luxury malls. And so it just becomes like a fait accompli. And also by that point, the logic that uh, Solidaire had set into motion, linking financialization to ruination, linking financialization to destruction, to making destruction profitable, had come to spread to a level of broader common sense. The before-after images that I analyzed to make sense of the diagram of Solidaire are like press materials, corp, you know, annual reports, as well as a series of documentaries that they produced at the time that played in movie theaters and on TV.
0: Um, at the time. One of my, I think one of my favorite of them was a one that brought back memories uh, the in the air, the mural in the airport.
1: I end so I end that chapter on. This lenticular image that hung in Beirut Airport for many years. A lenticular image is one where you walk past it and you see one image; it shifts to another. A crackerjack, <laughs> like, like like a crackerjack box. But of course, the funny thing about lenticular images is, if you walk past them in the other direction, they change back. The before-after image. This is the curious temporality of these types of images: is it refers back to ruination, which I, I argue suggests a plasticity to urban space unwittingly the before after iconography tells
0: us that always already there could have been a different outcome for the city so interesting Hatem. thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us there's so much more we could say about this book but um it was just uh, it was just a pleasure to read thanks for joining us
1: fantastic to talk to you Mark. thank you for having me
0: (laughs) This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's article episode, we're joined by Kevin Kohler of Leiden University, and he's the author, along with Sharon Gruel of William & Mary and Holger Albrecht of the University of Alabama, of a new article, Who Fakes Support for the Military? Experimental Evidence from Tunisia, just out in democratization. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell us about this article and uh, what you guys uh, set out to do and what you found.
2: Sure. So, what we're interested in uh, in this article is to examine the degree of uh, popular support for the military, and we think that this is uh, particularly uh, important in transitional political settings and settings of, you know, hybrid regimes, um, because of the the impact that military behavior can have in such in such settings on political development, uh, largely, uh, of course, there there are issues such as, you know, direct military intervention and military coups. But then we're also thinking about uh, stuff such as, you know, reserved military domains in, um, in transitional settings and so on. And for all these questions, of course, it matters whether the military has popular support or does not have popular support. And so if you look at uh, standard um, public opinion surveys, such as uh, the World Value Survey, also the regional barometers, Arab barometer included, uh, what you will find is that um, uh, levels of support for the military are always relatively high in these surveys. In fact, if you if you look at these numbers, it seems that the military is kind of the most trusted uh, state institution compared to, to political parties, parliaments and so on. Um, And our suspicion was that, uh, you know, some of this at least might be driven by sensitivity bias, just simply by uh, respondents misreporting their level of support for the armed forces. And we wanted to look into this question, and we examined this uh, in the context of Tunisia in particular, with uh, two list experiments um, uh, in two separate surveys. And we did find that there's uh, quite significant levels of, of misreporting, so differences basically Uh, levels of support if we ask directly and levels of support if we ask in uh an experimental uh question and we try to explain why this misreporting might be there and our uh kind of explanation is and what we find support for also in the analysis is that it's about uh what we call incumbency bias so basically uh respondents uh, misreporting support for the military if their preferred party is part of the of the governing coalition of the day, and kind of they they feel that they have to uh, generally be positive towards all types of um, uh, state institutions. That's that's the that's the argument, and that's the story that we're telling in this in this paper.
0: So before we talk about uh, Tunisia or about the uh, the survey experiments themselves, why do you expect to see a misrepresentation? Why would people be falsifying their attitudes towards the military?
2: Right, I, I think there there are a number of reasons. Some of them are more general, and we would expect them to to apply to all types of settings. And some are a bit more specific. Uh, if we start from the general ones, I think there's a, a, a general kind of social um, uh, pressure on on people to say that you know they like the military because of what the military does. Right, the military is, is there to protect uh, the nation. At least that's uh, of course the uh, you know the main function. Right, and so there is kind of a uh, you know, derived from this, there is a, there is a certain amount of social pressure to say yes, because you know those guys are uh, you know in in uh, if if push comes to shove, they actually are the ones who will sacrifice for uh, for our security, and therefore we have to we have to say that we that we support them. right? So that would be kind of a general source of social desirability bias. Now, depending on the political context, in particular if we're talking about, more closed authoritarian political contexts, you might also expect that a second source uh, is um, a fear of punishment, right? So if we think about contexts in which the military maybe holds political power, then you know, saying that you don't support the military might be something that might be perceived as opposition, and therefore. Uh, you you might expect punishment for it. So that's kind of a a second source. And then uh, we add to these uh, sources a third kind of category of sources for for misreporting, which we uh, think of as uh, political expediency. And there are kind of two different variants of this source of of misreporting. One would be kind of partisan sources. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the literature that's... on on support for the American military, where there are also some experimental studies, this is actually something that you can observe that, you know, uh, Republicans tend to uh, um, uh, misreport their support for the military, right? Uh, uh, And the explanation very often given in the literature is that because Republicans tend to be overrepresented in the American military, this kind of means that Republicans feel that they also have to uh, support the military more than uh, than other uh, respondents do. And we think there might be something similar going on in Tunisia. And the second uh, kind of political expediency reason for supporting or misreporting support for the military is what we call incumbency bias. And this is this idea that uh, if your preferred gov- uh, party is in government, then you will kind of uh, say more positive things about all state institutions in order to make sure that, you know, these different uh, preferences align in the way in which you speak about your party political preferences and then uh, your support for state institutions. And as I said before, this is basically, we test these uh, two political expediency hypotheses against each other and we find support for the for the, uh, incumbency bias hypothesis in, in Tunisia.
0: Now, Tunisia, as you point out in the article, is kind of a hard case uh, for some of these hypotheses, given the nature of its military and the democratic transition that was going on during the period you were conducting the research. So
2: tell us about Tunisia specifically, right? So uh, that's exactly how we how we try to set this up in the uh, in the article. That um, you know there countries where you would expect much more preference uh, falsification, much more misreporting than in Tunisia, Uh, Egypt, for example, of course, because of the role of the military there. And so in the regional comparison, uh, Tunisia is a much uh, harder case for finding this kind of uh, stuff, because the Tunisian military historically has not played a very important role in politics. Um, And because, and that's the second reason, at the time of the of the two surveys that we ran, so one is uh, 2017, one is 2019, we still had an ongoing uh, democratic uh, transition, and so this kind of fear of punishment reason that I mentioned before is also not something that is very strong in Tunisia, right, Tunisians were free at the time to criticize state institutions, and in fact, in both uh, surveys, we see people quite freely criticizing different state institutions, the police, uh, political parties, parliament, uh, and so on. So uh, because of these two reasons, right, the marginal role, political role of the military and the relatively free envir- environment in, in Tunisia in general, we would expect that this is a, a context in which sh- there should be less misreporting. And that's why it's kind of a hard case for, for the type of study that we're doing.
0: So then let's talk about the uh, the empirical core of the article. You have uh, uh, two surveys with an embedded list experiment. Um, How do you go about measuring misrepresentation or preference falsification?
2: Right. So um, there, there are kind of two elements to this. Right. So one is just simply the experimental approach to measuring kind of levels of sufo- support for the military. And then you compare this to a direct question. This is how you get that misrepresentation or misreporting. Um, Uh, And the experimental uh, measure is derived from list experiments, so there are two different uh, list experiments in two separate surveys. Listed experiments, in in general, uh, work in the following way. You you divide um, your your sample in kind of a treatment and a control group. Randomly, of course, the control group gets a list of items from which they can endorse a certain number of items. They will only tell you the number of items they like, not which items and the treatment group gets the same control items plus the sensitive item, in our case, uh, the military, right? And then uh, you compare these two groups and the difference in the number of items endorsed tells you uh, how many people, in our case, um, uh, voice uh, kind of support for the military. And so what we did in both surveys was ask a direct question, for you know, do you think the military has a positive influence on how things are going in the country and an indirect question or an experimental question, a list experiment. And we find relatively high levels of uh, differences, so of misreporting in both uh, surveys, actually surprisingly high levels. In the first survey, it's around 40 percentage points difference between the direct and experimental measure. And in the second survey, it's even 50 percentage points difference. And so we think that there is something going on here in terms of people feeling that they have to misrepresent uh, what they actually feel about, about the military. So I think the part that will be the most,
0: um, you know, unusual or novel to, to at least some listeners will be the list experiment component of that. So how do you go about, um, you know, designing this in a way that can get at something sensitive like um, support for the military?
2: Right. So um, the general logic of list experiments and why they're good for, uh, you know, getting at sensitive items is that respondents can basically hide behind an additional layer of anonymity, because the only thing that they report to survey enumerators is a number, right? So the survey enumerator will ask, how many of these items in the list do you like or endorse? Uh, and then uh, respondents just re- report a number, and there is no way for the survey enumerator to know whether this number includes the military, yes or no, right? So that's kind of this general uh, thing for, for this experiment and just simply how how they make it easier for respondents to endorse items that they might think are, you know, socially not very acceptable. Um, The second kind of more technical issue in in list experiments and something that is uh, that is quite important uh, is that you have to be very careful in the way in which you uh, choose to control items in particular, because you want to avoid two, two situations, ceiling effects on the one hand and floor effects on the other. Ceiling effects refer to the idea that If you choose control items that are so popular that everybody would endorse all of them, then, of course, this additional layer of anonymity doesn't work anymore, right? Because everybody would endorse all four control items. And then if somebody says, I endorse five items, you know, there's also the military there, right? So no anonymity. Floor effect is the opposite. If you only have very unpopular items on your list... Then uh, nobody endorses any control items, and then it's a zero-one question, uh, and you know again uh, if the military is um, among those, right? Uh, And so this is uh, a question of, you know, a context-specific question in terms of which control items work uh, in in which setting. And indeed, uh, there is some evidence that in one of our experiments, we had uh, uh, floor effects uh, in... uh, because apparently uh, the control items that we chose there uh, were um, sufficiently unpopular among many uh, Tunisians so that uh, some of them did not endorse any of those, which is then one reason why we ran a second experiment to to control for this potential problem Mm -hmm. in in our experimental design. Now, one additional uh, kind of word on on the question of uh, uh, ceiling and floor effects, of course, if you, uh, if there was a massive problem with any of these uh, uh, effects, you would expect a smaller difference between uh, the direct and the experimental question, right? Because uh, um, uh, respondents would either misreport on both or on neither, right? But we still find massive um, uh Uh, Differences between the two, so this also seems to suggest that even though there might be a floor effect in one of the experiments it's not necessarily something that uh, uh, you know biases the results. It's really interesting.
0: And it's, a, it's just a really creative way of getting at something which people m- might not even uh, have recognized was an issue politically. Um, and so, one of the, I guess, the last question is you, you mentioned how uh, central the political context is here in terms of when you might or might not feel comfortable expressing your true opinions about the military. Um, and so, in the case of Tunisia, you've had. Transition turbulence and now the constitutional coup and and everything that's been happening now, so in what way do you think that this matters as the political context changes? These findings.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean the political context is absolutely central, right? So there are probably some of this, uh, you know, uh, you know, needs to to miss report about the military or rather some like some element of what makes the, the military a sensitive item in the first place comes from the political context. now uh, our two surveys were in 2017 and 2019 right so this is of course before uh, the, the current constitutional crisis in Tunisia um, and then uh, but still of course you see some development uh, in this uh, in between these two uh, surveys as well in particular, you know, there were some cases uh, in which uh, people actually faced legal trouble for, uh, you know, criticizing the military. It's not very widespread in Tunisia, but you have this kind of stuff going on. And, you know, so one explanation for why we find this larger discrepancy in the second survey in 2019 might be that exactly, you know, kind of the sensitivity of, of being, uh, of, you know, being critical of the military has increased and therefore you find a, a, greater, a greater difference that would be one one explanation in kind of larger uh for in a larger from a larger perspective um i would expect if we were to run something like this again we would we wish i mean if the logic is correct we should find even greater uh misreporting now because arguably uh post uh july 2021 uh the sensitivity of, you know, military and politics and so on has increased significantly in Tunisia, uh, given, you know, how what how the military has supported basically the the, the constitutional coup in uh, in Tunisia. So we haven't done this, but this is what I would expect to find if we were to run this again. Great, thanks, Kevin. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with us about your really interesting new article. Thanks for for having me.
0: This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Christian Coates-Polriksen of Rice University's Baker Institute. Um, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it's been a big few weeks in uh, the relationship between the United States and its major Gulf allies with Ukraine crisis and uh, oil prices and a lot of turbulence along the way. Can you give us a general sense of how you assess the current state of the relationship?
3: Well, I think there's not a single U.S. Gulf relationship. On the one hand, relations with Qatar and the U.S. have become much closer. Qataris were designated a major non-NATO ally at the end of January. That became official early March. On the other hand, relations with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, have become more difficult, perhaps. Uh, we're led to believe that uh, Mohammed, bin Zal- Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed have uh, been unwilling to speak with Joe Biden. Uh, even as they've been willing to speak to Vladimir Putin. And then relations with the other Gulf states, I think, are just moving ahead as normal. So I think there are at least two very different tracks in U.S.-Gulf relations. Uh, on the one hand, the polarization of relationships between the U.S. and Russia has put the Gulf states in a difficult position because they don't want to be forced into a position where they have to take sides and choose. Obviously, that leaves the long-standing security and defense relationships with the U.S., on the one side and their closer political and economic relationships with countries like Russia or potentially China on the other so it's a it's an it's an equilibrium that might be getting more difficult to balance uh, the longer this war goes on
0: a lot of the um uh, of the rhetoric that comes out of Saudi Arabia the UAE argues that the U.S. Has, uh, has become non-credible in its security guarantees, that it hasn't been living up to its side of the bargain. Um, how, how do you assess those kinds of arguments?
3: Well, a lot of that was after the 2019 attacks on American maritime facilities in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and especially the attack on Abqaiq in September 2019, when Donald Trump actually uh, said this is an attack on uh, their interest, not on U.S. interest. He actually drew a distinction for the first time between US and Saudi Emirati interests. And actually, if you look at it in a pragmatic way, Joe Biden has actually reaffirmed US support for Saudi security. He did so in a telephone call with King Salman in February. And the US has also responded to the Houthi attacks on Abu Dhabi in January by sending patriot missiles, USS Cole, and a squadron of F-22 fighters. So the US under Biden has actually. Uh, gone further than Trump did in reaffirming U.S. support for the security and defense relationships. The problem is, I think, that perceptions in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh are very different, and the Saudis and Emiratis seem determined to uh, press the U.S. on the issue of designating the Houthis in Yemen as a terrorist organization, and until they get that point um, resolved, they don't seem to be wanting to support and the US or the Biden administration in terms of oil prices. So there's a linkage there, which uh, is, I think, causing some of the uh, tension that we're now seeing.
0: Now In Washington, uh, increasingly, you'll hear people saying things like um, the entire purpose of uh, having a relationship with Saudi Arabia is to keep oil prices low during a crisis, and they're refusing to do that. And so it's Riyadh that's not living up to its side of the bargain. How do you assess those kinds of arguments?
3: Well, I think the U.S.-Saudi relationship has always been more than just oil and security. It's always had a whole range of other factors. But the fact is that the Saudis do have spare capacity. So does the UAE, actually. And they're not, I mean, if the Saudi and Emirati leadership chose to increase production to bring down prices, they could do so. Having said that, they are both part of OPEC plus with Russia, and they have their agreement from 2020 and 2021 to only incrementally increase uh, oil oil production uh, to uh, pre-pandemic levels. And so the Saudi and Emirati leadership have made a calculation that the OPEC plus agreement matters more to their interests than any US domestic political issues uh, stemming from the rise of gasoline prices. And I think there's been a divergence of interest in that respect. And the Saudis perhaps are trying to send a message both to the US and to Boris Johnson from the UK, who was in Saudi Arabia last week, that. You can't just come and expect us to increase oil prices. We want something in return. And as I said, I think that in return is probably a designation of the Houthis in Yemen. They don't seem to want to give the Biden administration something without getting something back.
0: And that kind of transactional uh, type of relationship and uh, kind of intra-alliance bargaining is nothing new. I mean, this is something which we have seen a lot of between the United States and its allies in the Middle East over the years. Is there anything new about this?
3: Well, of course, it became much more obvious that transactional relationship under Donald Trump as well. And so to some extent, the Saudis and the are continuing that aspect of that relationship. I think perhaps the people in Washington, D.C. might wonder then why are we supporting, continuing to send military uh, assets to defend Saudi Arabia and, uh, and the UAE when this is what we get in return. I think some of the core tenets of that relationship are being tested. I mean, the sight of... Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed seemingly snubbing the U.S. president by being willing to to speak with the Russian president at a time like this,
0: I think will not be forgotten
3: quickly in in D.C.
0: Now, from the perspective of Abu Dhabi, um, presumably they feel that they have earned a sizable amount of credit via the Abraham Accords and normalization of relations with Egypt. Uh, Recently, uh, the little trilateral summit meeting convened with uh, Prime Minister Bennett and uh, President Assisi of Egypt. So mm. how do you read that within this broader context? Why is that not buffering this relationship?
3: The UAE does seem to be much more open about the fact that there is a point of tension in the relationship where uh, Yusuf al even said in Abu Dhabi last couple of weeks ago that they were, they were undergoing a stress test in the U.S. The UAE relationship. I think that's partly because uh, Again, the UAE came under attack from Houthi missiles and drones in January. They feel that the U.S. didn't do enough to respond, in their view, again, with the Houthi designation. I think it all goes back to that. And I think also the fact that the Biden administration hasn't been willing, perhaps as willing, to to meet with senior leaderships from both countries. So they feel perhaps... uh, uh, frozen out to a degree by by this administration, they feel, I think, also with the Iran nuclear negotiations, that there's a danger that they're being cut out again. So a lot of the old points of tension that they had with the Obama administration are coming back. And again, the perception, I think, in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi is that uh, this is a sort of third term of Obama. Many of the same people are in more senior positions and are now back in government. And so they don't seem to be willing to, to give the, uh, the US administration, at least for now, anything for free. And I think they're being more assertive. I think the Houthi attacks on Abu Dhabi in January have made them, the UAE much more uh, hard-nosed, in effect, to try and get what they want. And they're, they're not willing to back down, at least, at least for now.
0: In the middle of all of this, there's the ongoing uh, U.S. support for uh, for Saudi Arabia, the UAE in Yemen, uh, despite uh, uh, Biden having prioritized trying to end that war. And the general sense seems to be that uh, the U.S. is stuck between uh, wanting to end the war, but also not wanting the Houthis to win the war. Um, And so how is the how is the U.S. role there playing out in this uh, kind of turbulent relationship?
3: Well, that, for me, is one of the most striking aspects, because from any assessment, from a Saudi assessment, the US or the Biden administration has actually been probably the least negative end of the spectrum they could have expected when he took office a year ago. Biden took office having claimed in a campaign debate that he would make Saudi a pariah. He hasn't. The uh, US response to the release of Khashoggi, the Khashoggi killing findings was very muted. Um, Biden has continued to speak to senior, the king of Saudi Arabia. U.S. officials have continued to supply defensive weaponry to the Saudis. They've reaffirmed support for the Saudi security in the face of Houthi attacks. So it's hard to see what more they could have done. Now, they haven't spoken to Mohammed bin Salman. They clearly have made a decision that Biden will engage with the king. Mohammed bin Salman will engage with his counterpart, which is the Secretary of Defense, Lord Austin. So I mean, it could be that that is part of the, the trouble, but from a, from a Saudi perspective, the Biden administration hasn't been a rupture in US-Saudi relations. I just think that they have become perhaps more assertive in trying to get more from this administration than they might otherwise have expected.
0: Now, some people have argued that uh, what we're witnessing is a US retrenchment leading to this f- more formal uh, alliance between Israel and the Gulf states against Iran, in which they will kind of do their own thing, regardless of how the United States proceeds with uh, the possible return to the JCPOA. Um, What would that mean? Or what what does that mean for the the general US uh, security relationship with with its partners?
3: Well, if you look at the trajectory of
0: of Israel UAE relations, it's
3: very different from the trajectory of US UAE relations. And of course we we just had the meeting between Mohammed bin Zayed and uh, the Israeli Prime Minister and the uh, President Sisi in uh, in Egypt, and I think we're we're seeing a direction of travel where Israel and the UAE are working much closer together. Probably because both countries share a sense of sense of concern both about the Biden administration and about uh, about the JCPOA and the potential for any new agreement with Iran. They both feel potentially cut out, and so they're perhaps moving into that space to try and figure it out for themselves. and One of the components of the uh, Abraham Accord signed between the UAE and Israel in 2020 was a strategic agenda for the Middle East. It was actually not part of the other Accords. that Israel signed with Sudan, with Morocco and with uh, Bahrain. So we're seeing, I think, Israel and the UAE maybe thinking about longer term what a quote-unquote post-American gulf might look like, what regional partners might stand up in in the effect of the U.S. disengagement. And again, perception is driving reality in a sense that they do think the U.S. is disengaging. And so I think they're making arrangements to begin to move into that space over the medium to longer term. And so that meeting we just saw could be part of that. And I suspect the Saudis will have been fully aware of the meeting, obviously, because the Saudis haven't yet normalized with Israel. They couldn't probably be part of it, at least visibly. But I suspect that they're part of that sort of beginning to think about that new that new space that might open up if if the U.S. is perceived to disengage or if they become more assertive in trying to uh, put forward their own interests in the insecurity.
0: Now, if Saudi Arabia and the UAE are thinking about, uh, as you put it, a post-American gulf, what can they see in, say, Russia or China? That would be an alternative to U.S. security provision and uh, this, you know, decades-long um, structure of a U.S.-dominated Gulf.
3: Well, I think that's where the difficulty lies, and that's where they haven't yet figured out a credible replacement or replication of the the web of security and defense relationships that have underpinned security over seventy decades. And I think until they figure that out, there will be this. Awkward uh, balancing act where they do still rely upon the U.S. for so much, but they're trying, but they are drifting further apart geopolitically in so many different ways. Um, Of course, Donald Trump called them uh, in a sort of he very much was trying to get them to increase burden sharing, but ultimately, the as we saw in 2019, when the U.S. didn't respond to the the Iranian attack or the Iranian attributed attacks on Abkhaz we saw a sudden a sudden move to de-escalate tension with Iran from the Saudis and So you know, Once you begin to take away that U.S. security umbrella, they realize that they were much more vulnerable. And so they haven't yet been able to replicate that. And I suspect that Russia or China will not be willing to invest anything like the same level of resources. So I think until we have any potential move to a new security complex, there will be that continuing point of tension between... Reliance on the U.S., reliance on other Western countries, and this geopolitical shift, which has become much more apparent over the last few weeks with, with Russia and with Ukraine.
0: So you've been you've been studying and writing about uh, the international relations of the Gulf for uh, for a long time. Um, so when you when your next book uh, comes out. Do you think this current round of turbulence will be like the beginning of the new chapter about the post-American Gulf or will it be buried in the middle of a chapter about the ongoing uh US Saudi UAE uh turbulent relationship the structure have kind of locked them into place or is something really new happening
3: I do think it's accelerated the process of geopolitical drift I do think it's really brought out into the open became much more visible that process that has been going on, I think, for at least five or six years, probably from a Saudi Emirati point of view, three successive US administrations, Obama, Biden, Obama, Trump and Biden, very different in tone, but again, maybe exacerbating some of the concerns that they may have had, and in doing so, of course, leading to increased US concerns about what their partners in the Gulf themselves are doing. So I think this has maybe made it more visible. Obviously, US-Russia relations have now soured to an exceptional extent. And so the ability of partners in the Gulf to have it both ways, to sort of have their cake and eat it in terms of maintaining relationships with all parties, might become more difficult, especially, I think, the longer the war goes on, the more polarised the international context gets. So I think we are seeing the acceleration of these trends, where they end up is another matter. We'll probably only become clear a few years down the line, but we're definitely seeing them become much more open than perhaps they were in the past.
0: All right. Well, Christian, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. And I'm sure we'll be checking in again soon.
3: Yes. Thank you very much for having me.